14. John chapter 14, the fourth gospel in the New Testament. If you ever need a Bible, by the way, we keep them under the pews. So there's one there that you can use, and if you want to take it with you, that's fine. Um, And if there isn't one there, let me know. John chapter 14 will be our reading this morning, and I'll read from verses 1 through 14. Wanted to do one more sermon here in John's gospel, and so we'll do that this morning. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your beautiful word as it bears witness to the Son, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, as Jesus even refers to here. So help us this morning to hear his voice, to learn, to submit to your teaching, and to rejoice in you. May this good news warm our hearts. May it meet whatever need is here today. Folks may be tired, folks may be worried, maybe facing some anxiety or some uncertainty, or have a a tough challenge in front of them, or, or giving attention to spiritual things and trouble. Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would speak to each heart and meet each need. And of course, do for us as a body, as, as one body, as, as a body engaged in worship and, and in mission will shape us in that aspect as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a large portion of John's gospel takes place during the final week of Jesus' life. And the verses we've read this morning were once again in what's often called the farewell discourse, which is this long speech of Jesus in which he discusses with the disciples what will happen after he departs from them. 
He's going away to be crucified, and Jesus wants to tell them what that will be like and what will happen afterwards. And they are wrestling throughout this whole discussion to understand his words. And Jesus sets the stage for this. He introduces the discourse in chapter 13 when he reveals several troubling ideas. One, Judas will soon betray him. He is going to a place where the disciples cannot come. And when Jesus says, I'm going there, I'll follow you wherever you go, even if I have to die for you, Jesus says, before the night ends, you will deny me three times. So Judas will betray, Peter will deny, and Jesus is going to leave them. And these words made the disciples upset. And that is why Jesus begins chapter 14 with these words, do not let your hearts be troubled. The things he has told them are troubling. And perhaps they're thinking that everything they've worked for, everything they've been looking forward to for the past three and a half years is suddenly come undone. And maybe they're wondering, was this a good decision? We left everything to follow Jesus. We've been thinking the kingdom would come in glorious power. And now we find out one of us is a double agent. Another one of us is going to abandon Jesus. We don't know where he's going. Everything is falling apart. Their whole world was collapsing. And maybe at some point in your life, whatever the circumstances were, it felt that way to you, that the the ground was knocked out from under your feet. Things didn't feel stable. You didn't know what was coming or how things were going to turn out. Well, how does Jesus speak to us in those circumstances? How does he comfort us when it feels like things are falling apart? This passage tells us. And it begins by showing us Jesus focusing the disciples' faith on him. This first verse opens up the whole chapter. You believe in God, believe also in me. If you followed me to this point, if you think that God is working through me to fulfill his promises and bring about his kingdom, then you can trust me to be as reliable as God. And you can continue to trust me as the one through whom God will work his purposes. If you see God at work and you followed me thus far, then take that to its logical conclusion. Take that to the finish line. Follow that through and continue to trust in me. Yes, the story's taken an unexpected turn, but that doesn't mean it's gotten off track. That doesn't mean the story is over. What's going to happen is what God has planned. And if you focus your faith on me, Jesus says, you will be comforted. And so what Jesus does in the rest of the passage is gives the disciples reasons why they can trust him. And as we go through, we'll see four reasons he gives them for trusting him. And they're all based on it. They all flow out of this first verse. That if you believe in God, believe also in me. Because Jesus and the Father are working together. Because they share this divine essence. Because God is working through Jesus. Then they can trust him to be faithful. So let's focus then on those promises. The comforting promises Jesus gives us in the middle of our troubles. And here's the first. Jesus prepares a place for us in his father's house. 
That's the first reason they can trust him is because his departure is necessary, but only temporary. Jesus must leave them in order to prepare a place for them in his father's house. He's got a job to do. And he needs to go away for a season to do it. Verses 2 and 3 read, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So his departure is going to be painful, but it is also for their advantage. He's going to go prepare a place. And furthermore, his absence is only temporary. He will soon be reunited with his people, and once reunited, there won't be any more separation. So what is the nature of these rooms that Jesus is preparing, and how will he come back for us? Well, even in me referring to these places as rooms may throw you off a little bit. We're probably still used to the language of the King James where he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. But the word, and we imagine then these different mansions in which each believer lives for eternity. But the English word mansion just flows out of the same Latin word mansion. And so the, the meaning when we think mansion, it's a little different from the way the original word meant it. It's just a reference to rooms, a father's house, a large house with many rooms. And Jesus goes to prepare a room for us. So what are those rooms? Well, I think we can discern from John's gospel two ideas. Earlier in his gospel in chapter 2, and we've referred to this verse many times, Jesus refers to the temple as his father's house. In the Jerusalem temple and in the magnificent temple that Ezekiel promises in the last days, there are many rooms for all of the temple's purposes. So if Jesus says, I'm going to go to my father's house to prepare a room for us, he's using the language of building a temple. Jesus says, I need to go away and build a temple. Well, where is that temple? It's right here in this room. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, and I've shared this truth many times, in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You hear all the construction language in that passage, all the materials language, all the blocks are being built together to be a temple where God God lives by his spirit, and that is you and me. As we considered a few weeks ago, Jesus will return to his people. When? When he rises from the dead and sends the spirit after his ascension. So when Jesus says, I'm going to go away and come back, the first idea he's saying is, I'm going to die and go away from you. But I'll rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, and I will send the spirit And he will build you into his temple. That's phase one. But there's a second idea, too, that emerges from the Bible as a whole. If we were to look at the last book of the Bible, we would see that there is an even greater temple to come. 
the holy city on the last day comes out of heaven. It's called the New Jerusalem, and it's shaped like a temple. If you've ever looked at the dimensions, the city is a giant cube. And if you think, that's an odd shape for a city, the tabernacle and the temple was shaped like a cube, at least the Holy of Holies was. So here's this temple city coming out of heaven on the last day, and John says, do you see that city temple? That's the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And I bet that's language we're more used to thinking when we refer to ourselves, the church. We're the bride of Christ. Well, John says, you see that temple city coming to the earth? That is the bride. The bride is the temple. And so on the final day, God himself, here's the point, here's the payoff. God himself is going to show up and he's going to dwell with his people. And it's going to be on a new creation, new heavens and new earth. And there will be perfect unity between God, humans, and creation. And that is what Jesus' words ultimately look like forward to when he comes again on the last day and brings about this final salvation. He's going to go away. He's going to build this temple. The Spirit's going to come build it while we wait for him to return. And then one day he will show up and complete the temple building work. And how does a truth like that comfort us? Well, the disciples are facing a situation of panic. They want to know what will happen next. And Jesus doesn't give them a full answer, but he does assure them he will be with them. Whatever happens next, and he gives them a few clues, he will be with them. And so his absence is painful, but it's necessary and it's beneficial because he's coming back to them in an even greater way by the Spirit. Now the Spirit can be with all of God's people. Jesus can be with all of God's people by means of the Spirit. And he must go away in order to bring about God's new creation. So the constant assurance that God gives us in his word is that things in our lives may not always go the way we anticipate them, but they will go the way God wants them to go, and in the midst of that, Jesus will be with his people. Even if for a season he's removed from the disciples, even if sometimes there's a season in your life, it doesn't feel like he's around, he is present, and we can cling to him by faith, and we can trust he'll see his purposes through to the very end. So he prepares a place for us. Here's the second reason we can trust our Lord, Jesus brings us to the Father. So after announcing, all right, I'm going to go prepare this place. I'm going to go build my Father's house for you. Jesus makes this comment to the disciples. You know the way to the place where I am going. Now, this happens several times in our verses today and later in John. Jesus will tell his disciples, you know something. And they'll object, they'll say, no, we don't know what you're talking about. That happens immediately in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Thomas hasn't quite grasped this idea that Jesus is going to his 
father's house and all the spiritual implications of that temple building. So Jesus is going to help him connect the dots. He's going to help Thomas explain how they can know the way to which Jesus is going. And he does it in this classic statement of verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Philip, here's what you need to know. The way to the Father's house is through me. How does God's salvation come? How does God's new creation come? It comes through Jesus. God is working through him. And in many ways, is this not the same conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus? God is at work. He is at work through Jesus. And specifically, Jesus says he is at work through me because I am the way. And the idea there is simply this roadway, pathway. We, we might read way and it sounds kind of general, but, but think street, route. What road do you take? To arrive in God's new creation. You take the way marked Jesus. He is the way of access to God the Father. He is the high priest who gives you access to God's presence. But Jesus also calls himself the truth and the life. And these kind of elaborate what it means for him to be the way. He calls himself the truth because he truly reveals God. You want to know what God is like? Jesus is the prophet who tells you what God is like. And he also calls himself the life because he gives God's life. He gives God's truth. He gives God's life. And because he does those things, he is therefore the way to God. And that is something Jesus expected Thomas to grasp. He tells him in verse 7, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. So from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Thomas, you know the way to the Father because you know me. To know me is to know the Father. And so you must believe, Jesus is saying, that I am, that he is the one through whom all these things come to pass. And so that is the comfort, friends. To know Jesus is to know the one true God of the universe, like the God who made all things, who controls all things, who will one day appear. We, we, we see him now only by faith, but to see him by faith through Jesus is to truly know him. So if you want to know what this God is like, then follow Jesus. And as you follow Jesus and remain in him, you will experience this life of the triune God. Maybe you can't touch it like the way you're touching your pew or your Bible, but but it's still real. A real life in the triune God, knowing God, knowing his son, knowing his son by means of the spirit. There is life there. Access to God's fatherly care, grace from the Lord Jesus Christ, the comforting presence of the spirit. So to know him and to remain with him is to experience life Now, and that's a comfort. So thirdly then, Jesus reveals the Father to us. Jesus reveals the Father to us. The conversation continues in verse 8. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. 
You know, with all this talk about the Father and, and the way to the Father, Philip finally says, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And so as he did with Thomas, Jesus points out, this is something Philip should already know. Maybe he knows it and doesn't even realize it. Jesus answers, verse 9, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Philip, I can't show you the Father. I've already shown him to you. If you see me, you see the Father. Now maybe for a minute we wonder, okay, well, well, how is this? I mean, aren't Jesus and the Father different persons? Yes, they are. But Jesus shares in the Father's essence. Not to get too complicated with the doctrine of the Trinity, but there's one God. There's one divine essence. And so when Jesus appears as this second person, he is still sharing this divine identity, this divine nature. And that's good news because it means that Jesus shows us what God is like. I know I keep saying that, but I think it's a very important emphasis. If you want to know what God is like, then know Jesus. He's telling his disciples, focus on me and you see the Father. I'm revealing him to you and you can know him. And as proof for this, Jesus appeals to the works the Father does through him. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus has been preaching sermons. He's been doing miracles. That's proof. The kingdom of God is at work in him. So what's the comfort? Jesus is not a second-rate savior whose departure means the end of his work. Someone who just died and that was a good period and now it's all over. No, in Jesus of Nazareth, God walked among us. And maybe as more encouragement for you and I, the fact that he has departed does not mean that his work comes to an end. In fact, he goes away so that his work can continue. So that he can continue to manifest his presence among us by means of the Spirit. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know him, then the triune God is at work among you and among us. And that means then that you can trust Jesus with your life. He is the true revelation of God. He knows what to do with your life. He knows what to do with your circumstances. He will do exactly what God wants him to do. And so you trust him and you follow him wherever he leads. And last idea then. Jesus glorifies the Father by making us spiritually fruitful. Now, these last verses, they contain some promises of Jesus. It might take a minute just for us to wrap our heads around what he's saying. First, verse 12, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, Because I am going to the Father. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that we will do even greater works 
than the ones he did. Can we do more impressive miracles than Christ himself? I mean, feeding four and 5,000 is really impressive. Can you and I do that? And if we can't, how come no one's ever done it? I mean, the whole history of Christianity, I don't know of anyone that's fed four or 5,000 in Jesus' name. Well, as I often say when we come to statements like this, I always want to be careful that we don't just blow off Jesus' promises. Oh, that just seems too hard to believe. That's too fantastic. You know, let's just, let's just domesticate it. Well, we don't want to do that. And at the same time, we want to make sure we correctly understand what he meant, that we don't have ideas that aren't faithful to what he himself meant. So how can we make sense of the statement? Well, Jesus has, in this passage, referred to miracles. But he has also referred to his words. In other words, Jesus preaches truth that reveals the Father. The point of his signs is to support or authenticate his message. Now, as we have also seen in John, the significance of Jesus' words were not always fully grasped during his ministry. I mean, even his disciples don't understand everything he's saying. Many things that Jesus said became apparent only after he rose from the dead and sent his spirit. So when Jesus says, I'm going to go away and you'll be able to do greater things, I think he means works that are greater because they bring things into greater clarity. We can see with greater clarity exactly what Jesus was doing in his death and resurrection. Now that the work of salvation is complete, Jesus' followers can proclaim that work with greater insight and on the ground of the finished work of Christ. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts. Now that Jesus has risen from the dead and the Spirit has come, Peter can say, okay, here's what was going on in all of the Old Testament history, and thousands are being converted by the power of the Spirit. I would suggest that's a greater work on one level than what took place before Jesus' death and exaltation. We're not going to do something greater than him dying and rising again. But he did that local ministry to a group of people who, for the most part, didn't understand what he was doing. Now the spigot's turned on full blast. And we can go out and with greater clarity and with greater scope say, this is what Jesus was all about. And I hope that brings good news because I've wondered at my own heart and I've had people say it to me. Wouldn't it have been better if we could have just lived when Jesus lived, seen him, touched him? You've got a question? Just ask him. I understand where that's coming from. But Jesus himself was saying, this is the greater time. This is a time of more insight. This is a time of greater scope. This is the time to live. And so that is a comfort. Now, with that understanding of verse 12 in mind, look at the last two verses, 13 and 14. Jesus says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I think we read this and we're like, okay, blank check, anything I want, ask, and I'll get it. But how often does that actually happen? Now, I'm not saying, okay, judge your faith by your experience. There is a call for faith. But these things don't seem to materialize as we might first imagine, but connect it to what Jesus just said in verse 12. If the ministers of Christ's covenant can go out 
and do greater works. They can proclaim the gospel in greater clarity based on the finished work. I think Jesus is saying, now you ask me for anything in line with that mission, and I will do it. You can do greater things for me, and so you ask for me to do those great things. And that fits the emphasis of verse 12, and it also fits the idea that we are asking for these things in Jesus' name. The idea isn't, okay, pray in my name. Stick my name onto any prayer, and it will be the magical formula. It's no, you ask in accordance with my name, i.e. all that my name stands for. All that my name gives impetus to. All that my name drives forward with mission. You can't stick it on anything prosperity-wise. You can't think it, stick it on just anything you want. Value-wise, it has to be what Jesus is behind. And you say, you ask for that, and I'll do it. You pray in line with my character and my purposes, and I will do it. And before you go out and say, wow... I used to enjoy that verse. Thanks for just sucking all the riches out of it. You know, now I got to agonize over whether this is an okay prayer. God is a generous father. You approach him with boldness, as scripture says. You pour out your heart to him. You ask for the things you need to ask for. He's a kind, heavenly father. He will work and answer according to his will. I'm not discouraging open prayer, but I want to increase your excitement about praying for things that are in accordance with Jesus' name and being bold to ask Jesus to do the things that his name and his mission support because he says he will eagerly do it. His goal is to bring glory to the Father. His goal is to make us spiritually fruitful. And his goal in this passage is to comfort troubled hearts. And he's saying, you can trust me to be that mediator to be there between you and the Father so you can know the Father and so that I can make you spiritually fruitful. So as these disciples were terrified at Jesus' imminent departure, three and a half years together, and now he's leaving them, the the little band of 12 will be fragmented. Everything is just on the brink of failure, and it's in that circumstance that Jesus assures his disciples. He says, you can take comfort in me. You can take comfort that God's promises are coming true through me. And I would just leave you with the idea that it may not always seem like it, but that's a better assurance than improved circumstances. Now, maybe sometimes God does change our circumstances. He's merciful. But for Jesus to be with us, well, that can go with you through any circumstance and be a foundation you can rest on when you can't find any other solid ground. So you reach out to him. You cultivate that as as a habit and, and a direction of your life to reach out to Christ and to seek him and his presence to be our comfort. Let's give thanks and pray to God. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the promises that Jesus gives us here. Thank you for him taking the time to instruct his disciples before he left them and to give words of comfort that would comfort not only them but us. And so as we seek to be that community, that continuing community, the temple where you dwell by your spirit, then we pray, fashion us into that image, forgive us 
of our failures and shortcomings form us into that building, that new humanity. Give us comfort with whatever might be in front of us, either individually or as a whole. Meet the need of every heart. And Father, make us spiritually fruitful, we pray, in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in closing hymn 499, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. Hymn 499, you can stand, we'll sing all four verses.